0: Hey, it's Monique, and this is episode 94 of the Brown Vegan Podcast. And with this show, I love to present veganism from a practical perspective and also bring on guests to share their experiences. So I hope all is well in your world. Thank you so much for all of the support on the last episode with all those tech issues. I really appreciate it. And um, I think that I feel like I've got everything worked out. So yeah, on this episode, I have Chef Zhu, who is based out of Atlanta, and he's on here to talk about his journey, why he decided to become plant-based, he's going to talk about being confident in the kitchen, how to veganize some of your favorite dishes, why veganism is culturally relevant to black folks, a lot of history on that, and he's going to talk about his outreach work and how it really helped him find his purpose. You can get all of the show notes for this episode at brownvegan.com under episode 94. So yeah, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump right into Chef Zo's plant-based story.
1: For me, I was overweight, not really obese, but I'm um, overweight. But I was on the borderline of being overweight could have turned into obesity. And I've seen it happen all through my family, my aunts, my uncles, my sisters, So I just thought about, you know, eating better to bring down my weight initially. You know, I just wanted to be as healthy as possible. So that's how the journey started. At the time, I mean, when I started the the journey, I wasn't vegan. I just tried to incorporate more fruits and vegetables in my diet, you know, from there kind of becoming vegetarian. And even before that, taking one meat out at a time over years, you know, my mother Dated a Muslim guy when I was a teenager. She came home and was like, we're not eating any pork anymore. You know, and that was like probably the beginning of the journey, even before becoming vegan, you know, no more pork anymore. Mom says Abdul doesn't want us to eat pork anymore. And then years later, you know, gaining weight, becoming overweight, and then trying to find that, you know, one thing that I could remove from the diet that would help me lose weight. You know, so it's like cheese, burgers, cheese, steaks was a big thing to me when I was a meat eater. So it's like no more beef. So now that was no pork, no beef. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, slowly no turkey. And then before you know it, you know, no chicken. So then it's kind of like I'm a vegetarian, but still not vegan. So still doing like, you know, coffee cream in my coffee. I would still request cheese on my plate when I ordered out or whatever so it took years to honestly for me to transition from a heavy meat eater to you know a fully uh, nutrient-dense plant-based diet yeah but it was all you know because of me wanting to obtain optimal health
0: yeah 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 which is a great reason I want to talk about the fact that this is I know this is really important to you how the stomach is your second brain what does that mean to you
1: for me, you know, I'm heavy on data, studies, reviews, uh, you know, I definitely have a mind of my own, but when we deal with topics that could make or break us as people, I have to go past my perception or how I feel and really go into the data studies, you know, to collect more information so that I could have like a just a better, you know, uh, foundation to stand on and a better understanding of the topic in general. I guess a way to say it or a way to start this conversation would be that we know that there's a nerve called the vagus nerve,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which is, you know, it connects the brain to the stomach. So just for people that aren't familiar with this topic at all, just trying to give them a couple, um, you know, keywords that they can search later to help them get a better understanding. So basically there's a nerve that goes from the brain, a cranial nerve, so it goes from the cranium down to the, you know, digestive tract or stomach, gut, whatever you want to call it. And it's called the vagus nerve. So, you know, that's key to look that up later for people that want to really understand. But, yeah, a lot of the hormones that we think would come from the brain actually are produced in the stomach or the gut. So, like uh, serotonin. Serotonin is a, a uh, hormone or a chemical which we know to cause uh, happiness. Mm-hmm. Um you know good feeling feelings of pleasure but it said that almost 80 percent of the serotonin in the body is actually produced in the gut in the stomach so when we're dealing with emotions you know so that could be depression because if you don't feel happy then what's the polar end of happiness right what's that other far extreme would almost be like sadness right. or possible you know depression if we know that 80% of the serotonin is produced in the stomach, which causes happiness, you know, for me, the key is to make sure that people are are just eating a balanced diet. Also, you know, I know we push vegan really hard in our community because I'm vegan and you're vegan. But for people that are not mm-hmm. vegan, just to know that, you know, there are a lot of things that we can do just as people in general mm-hmm. without, you know, always mentioning the fact that we have to, you know, only eat plants and vegetables. So my the whole thing is um, fermented foods, right? That would be the next key to understanding, balancing the gut, the flora, but also not just the serotonin, the dopamine, yeah. right? So uh, dopamine, you know, is like released a lot of times when we eat sugar and chocolate and things like that. And it's a it's a same thing, it's like a hormone, a chemical, uh, I don't know if you could almost say a neurotransmitter, but, um, it does the same thing It like not the exact same thing, but it's very similar to the serotonin, to where it can create a feeling of uh, euphoria, euphoric feelings, uh, feelings of pleasure, feelings of happiness. but the, the key is to know two things about that that one, the majority of that is also created in the stomach in the gut, but at the same time, we have to be mindful of. When we're eating these sugars, when we're eating this uh, milk and cheese, you know, dopamine is the same thing that is released from the brain during those times too. For me, it's twofold. It's one, we have to take care of our digestive tracts so that we can release the proper hormones, but at the same time, proper hormones to feel better. Um, And this is dealing with just feeling, right? Nothing else. When feeling is important, because if we don't feel good about ourselves, then we won't do good for ourselves or our communities or our family. Um yeah. You know, people that are in depression are probably the ones that get the least amount of work done. So just to place a person closer to happiness. I don't expect anyone to be happy every day. You know, things can go wrong at any point in our lives, whether it's a flat tire or another bill due or, you know, I chipped my tooth the other day. It's just like, wow, okay, You know i gotta fix this now Mm. um and you know and to get stressed out about it you know like chip too it could bring me further down and closer to depression so once again just making sure that my um my my digestive tract is pretty much balanced so that also means like not a lot of processed food you know you don't want to do all of these you know um additives preservatives and chemicals that are in this food is it basically just throws off the stomach it's so much stuff and just like let's say a Twinkie if we turn the Twinkie around not only is it genetically modified um but when you look at the list of things there and we know that you know most of us can't even pronounce everything on the back of that package it's a lot of chemicals and if we know that the brain is is a place for neurotransmitters, chemicals, hormones. And now the stomach is a second brain. When we're putting all of these chemicals in our stomach, we're confusing our system. It's like it's too many chemicals in there and they're not the ones that are supposed to be there. So now our stomach's kind of confused, literally, on what to do. Should I focus on processing what she put in here or what he put in here that doesn't belong? Or should I do the job that I'm supposed to do? Um, And at that point, it's kind of like your stomach or your digestive tract makes a decision. And it will usually say, I'm going to break down and discard what doesn't belong. Mm -hmm. Because your, your body's smart enough to know that if I don't get this stuff out, it could cause the whole body to become sick, not just the stomach. So my point is during that time of, you know, your body trying to break down the food that shouldn't be there. Now you're not releasing, you know, the same amount of serotonin or you could be receiving extra dopamine being released through bad diet, which is a false state of happiness. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dopamine, if I'm not mistaken, is the same chemical that's released from the brain when a person uses heroin.
0: Yeah, I read that.
1: Yeah, you know what I mean? So I know it sounds like a lot in a small, you know, box. But, it, you know, it, I'm trying to consolidate and condense as much as I can. No, and, this yeah.
0: is important. I'm so glad that you're talking about this. When it comes to the fermented foods, what do you recommend? Are you, like, you know, like kimchi? Like, what do you like to eat when it comes to fermented foods?
1: Yeah, I think some of my favorites would definitely be kimchi. I just did a brown fried rice the other day. I don't eat much rice maybe every other month. But I did some, um, you know, some brown rice. I did a fried rice and added kimchi to it. Kimchi, uh, definitely like yogurts, but of course, non-dairy yogurts. So now I'm at the point of just understanding what my body needs as far as, um, you know, once again, the the balance of the digestive tract. So fermented foods. So I do a little bit of yogurt myself. I will do Calathea Farms. They have like a really good uh, nut milk yogurt. Um, to have a blueberry flavor and a mango flavor, I'm getting further into, you know, just the fermentation process. So I will go as far as to make some yogurt in the near future, just to understand the ins and outs of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would be something that I probably wouldn't do often just because I, like, once again, I would probably go for the kimchi first, maybe even like a miso before that, you know, so we could do like a chickpea miso. Or like maybe a kombucha you know those would probably be like my first go-to things yeah and then and then right after that you know definitely yogurt is still on the list
0: so Um, is this something that you eat often? I mean do you feel like you have to have fermented foods daily or weekly like how do you consume it
1: yeah I would say for a person that doesn't consume because I don't want to get people thrown off by what I do because I might be a little further in the process So I think just for a person that's starting out, I would say just try to do it once a week if possible, trying to get, you know, so like even if it was, let's say I make like a mushroom Reuben, Um, you know, so the Reuben sandwich used to be, I think it was like roast beef, Swiss cheese, Thousand Island and sauerkraut, but I do it with uh, mushrooms instead of the roast beef. and. So my point is the sauerkraut. So, you know, just to get that and, you know, I I still eat pretty heavy. I might in one sitting, I might have two sandwiches, you know. And these aren't like, you know, 12 inch hoagies or anything. Like, right. you know, Clef, Clef, uh, what is his name? Uh, he, Cliff Huxtable used to eat this big old hoagies in the show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On the Cosby show. Yeah. But no, we're not talking about that big. But, you know, just two normal sandwiches. I might eat two sandwiches. My point is I'm thinking you're only going to get about a half of serving of sauerkraut on a sandwich. You know, so if you had one sandwich with sauerkraut, that might not be enough to really, you know, help the balance of your um flora or your digestive tract. So I would say maybe do the the sandwich and then maybe do like a yogurt too. It doesn't have to be on the same day. Right. But to me that would be like one decent serving Or for me, like I said, I might eat two sandwiches to where I'm getting twice the amount of sauerkraut. But if you could just, you know, humbly start with one time a week and then from there, after you feel comfortable enough to say, okay, I'm doing it once a week, you know, go to twice a week. And then, you know, I think, you know, anything past three times a week might become a little excessive because I still believe everything should be done in moderation. You know, just the fact that we know that um, fermented foods will help to digest the tract. I don't think we should try to eat fermented foods every day because yeah. then that wouldn't be, you know, moderation.
0: Right. It's interesting you say that because a lot of times people think we're not we're the least moderate people on the planet because we are vegans. So a lot of people say um, a little bit of cheese is not harmful. A little bit of meat isn't harmful. So how how do you feel like you find that balance for yourself then if you feel like moderation is the key for everything if that makes sense
1: (laughs) totally totally i mean i still eat meat it's just not the type of meat that we were known to eat before so my point is like nut meat right Mm -hmm. um even like the inside of the coconut a lot of indigenous people would call that the coconut meat so you know i still eat meat you know it's just not the type of meat that most americans would think of first when the word meat is mentioned same thing for cheese. I still make pine nut cheese. I still do cashew cheese. I do a little almond cheese. So for me, in moderation, you know, as far as cheese and meat, it's like yeah, I can still eat cheese. I could still eat meat. And I know that's probably not what you were thinking. I no, was
0: that's fine. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's true though. It's true because um people think that. We don't still enjoy those things. They're like, okay, you probably don't really. You know, you don't eat any meat, you don't eat anything. But I think taking back that language and applying it that way is so important. I think because sometimes people feel like they're losing out by becoming vegan, which is definitely something I want to talk about. Like, how do you stay satisfied as a vegan? Like, what do you, as a chef, <laughs> what recommendations do you have for people so that they can enjoy their food? Because they feel like they're losing out sometimes. I think that's a barrier. Do you agree that sometimes people feel like they're losing out and that's why they don't want to even try it?
1: Yeah, I think people definitely think they're losing out. Right from the beginning of like looking at the door of plant-based or the door of vegan from a person that eats meat, the first thing you're going to think is, I'm losing out. Why? Because I'm eating less. How do you figure you're eating less? Because you said I can't have any meat. You said I can't have any cheese. You said I can't have any milk, but I really didn't say that, and nor did plant-based or nor did vegan. It's just alternatives and options, right? That you're going to replace those old things with. You know, once again, you can still have meat, right? You can you can do like a nut meat. I mean, there's so many different you know ways to go. Uh, people say like um, they call it seitan or seitan or. See, I've, I've heard so many different ways. Me too. But it's I call
0: it Satan. Because I, I don't know how to yeah, say it either. I always hear it different ways. Yeah.
1: Well, the, the thing about it is the first time I had to make it as a chef, I just didn't feel comfortable saying I just made Satan. So I was just like, okay. So I just kind of on my own figured out a new way to say it. So I just say Seichten Because I just, it didn't feel comfortable, you know, saying I just made, I just ate Satan. Once again, I don't know how it's correctly pronounced, but, you know, it's like a, a wheat gluten, you know, base, which is used for meat alternative and like a lot of roasts and, you know, and, and food similar to that. It's like and beef, a, a beef replacement. Yeah, very, very similar to a beef replacement. And it, it, even like, for instance, on a holiday, it could be very similar to cutting into a turkey breast. You know, if you're familiar with carving the turkey, Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, that could be something that a person says, you know, well, I have so many issues with gluten, so I don't want to do that. But my point is just there's tons of different ways to, you know, creative alternatives for your meat, creative alternatives for your cheese and the same thing for your milk. And like if you do coffee, there's different ways to still do a creamer you know, but it's not that dairy cream, it's just a a, a plant-based cream. You know, as a, as a chef, we're talking to people that, you know, are trying to figure this thing out. The first thing you should do is just figure out what are your alternatives going to be. So saying that, it's kind of like going into um, meal planning to say, okay, you know, how many people do go to the grocery store with a list, but with the list, they have another list of what they're going to eat each day. So, you know, my list would usually say, like, pasta and then spaghetti sauce. But then later on in the week, normally, I would figure out what I'm going to do with that pasta and spaghetti sauce. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's wiser, you know, and this is what I'm focusing on now, is more planning for myself even. I think it's the wiser thing to do is to know what you're going to do with the pasta before buying it right mm-hmm. because now because now that puts you in a place of total comfort to know you know what alternative are you going to use with the pasta so if, for instance if you're going to do lasagna then you might want to do like a a meat crumble right so now you know one what to pick up from the store to be able to pull that dish off later instead of just buying pasta just buying spaghetti sauce and you don't know exactly what you're going to do with it later. If you wanted to do, let's just say, because that's the thing is people think everything is totally like peppers, squash and onions. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like the only thing I can have is just vegetable, vegetable, vegetables. It's like, no, that's not true. There are different meat alternatives that you can create and that you can buy. So a lot of times people will get into a, a situation where they get home and now they don't have the other pieces that they need to put the dish together that they want to have. If they would have planned that out before, they went to the store saying, okay, I need to get the meat crumble to go with the pasta. I need the marinara sauce. I also just seen this uh, new plant-based, and I'm not saying me, I'm saying a person in the store saying, oh yeah, last week I seen this um, plant-based Parmesan cheese. I want to try that this week, you know? And now that puts everything in a full perspective to where you're grabbing everything you need off the shelf and now you're going back home and you can really pull this dish off. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be new. It's going to be creative. You're going to feel empowered. Yes,
0: I was going to say that. That's the main thing, you feel empowered. Because if you don't feel empowered, you're not going to do it. Being empowered will give you the confidence to keep experimenting. So I think that's key. I'm glad you said yeah, but
2: that. but
1: if, if you feel discouraged, mm-hmm. like discouraged because... Ah, man, I don't have everything I need to pull this dish off. Ah, I would rather not go there, me personally. I would, you know, just that whole feeling of anxiety and ah, because that's what's going to happen if you, you know, find out that I missed this and I missed that and now I can't pull off the dish that I really want. So, I mean, first and foremost, it, it sounds cliche, but it's just meal planning. You know, people really need the meal plan and focus on what they're going to buy from the store before they hit the store. So Um, true.
0: But what about the cooking part of it, though? Because I feel like a lot of times people, including myself, weren't much (laughs) of a cook before they became a vegan. And I used to think I cooked a lot before I was vegan until I became vegan and realized I wasn't cooking a damn thing. I was just throwing stuff from a box in the oven. That's what I was doing, but I thought I was cooking. (laughs) So, what tips do you have, or what suggestions do you have for people to feel more confident to even start in the kitchen outside of the meal planning? Because that's definitely necessary, but to actually get in a kitchen. Because, you know, there's plenty of people who probably buy stuff and it just sits in their pantry or their refrigerator and they don't cook it. They go order food because they don't feel confident enough to cook because they don't cook much.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, once again, it's just people feeling like there's a hurdle or some type of barrier between, you know, food that's not prepared and the actual final plate on the, you know, on the table. What I would do for a person that's transitioning or is vegan now is focus on your favorite dishes that you ate because almost everybody I know that's vegan, let's just get this out, was eating meat at one point in their life. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I know any vegan that started out vegan. So with that being said, we have or had had favorite dishes that we ate from that time when we were still eating meat. So the first thing I would tell a person is to try to conquer you know, whatever that favorite dish was on a plant-based level, right? You know, on a vegan level. And, you know, sometimes I when I talk about food, I don't say vegan quite as much because, you know, I'm, I'm a chef standing in a kitchen with a leather belt on.
0: Oh, so you don't use the word vegan because you wear leather.
1: I'm just saying, you know, some people would go further into a culture standpoint of what they feel vegan is And because I might have a leather belt on while cooking, sometimes I use the term plant-based more than vegan. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've almost been approached about it even, you know, you have leather shoes on. It's like, excuse me? Wow. Oh, you you know, you said you were vegan and you have leather shoes on, you know, so it is a culture um, deals with a couple other things than just food. And so just for clarity, that's why I keep saying plant-based more than vegan, but um, yeah, So, but my thing is just to conquer whatever dish that is. So if it was a cheesesteak, all right, And it's like the favorite thing I used to love to eat before I was, you know, plant-based or before I was vegan was cheesesteak. It's like, okay, so let's figure out how we can make a plant-based vegan cheesesteak now that you're either transitioning or already have stepped into this lifestyle, all right? That, so that would be my first thing to do for a person that really wants to start to cook more because you know, why do anything else other than that? If this is the dish that you love the most, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So you're going to get, you're going to get most satisfaction from eating something that's your favorite dish. But on top of that, you'll even feel more empowered that you were able to do it and not have to go somewhere else to do it. So like, just to give you an example, like I said, I used to love cheesesteaks, and then I stopped doing the beef, so then I was doing the chicken cheesesteaks. So now that I'm plant-based vegan, it's like I might do uh, jackfruit cheesesteaks. It's the same concept, right? It's like I used to – well, it goes – cheesesteak goes all the way back to me for – um, what was those things? Steakums. Ah, right? uh, you went, took it yeah. back.
0: How they do they still make steakums, but you really took it back? Uh,
1: yeah, you know, so that's what I'm saying. This was a culture. It wasn't just – Going to the, it wasn't just going to the, uh, super, I mean, not the supermarket, but the, um, like the corner bodega or the Italian, you know, pizzeria to get a cheesesteak. It was my mother coming home with these packs of, you know, shaved beef and we were making cheesesteaks at home. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, so adding the garlic, I remember, you know, adding the garlic powder and the onion powder and, um you know, whiskey sear sauce. And this is things I picked up from her, you know, to chop up those, you know, uh, sheets of beef. She would always add a little whiskey sear sauce and she would always add a little um, garlic and onion. And as she would say, you know, I have to adopt it up.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, so my point is, it, it, this goes way back for me. And, and to be able to finally put this dish on my table now that I've transitioned, nothing feels more satisfying than that for me because it's something that is almost like a cousin. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like I've known cheesesteak as long as i know my cousin. Um, you know, so that would be key for me, right? Like, if you love lasagna, then try a lasagna. Um, you know, if you love cheeseburger, maybe do a black bean burger or, you know, an eggplant burger. Whatever your favorite dish is, Try to focus on really mastering that dish through your plant-based vegan lifestyle as a start on how to cook more vegan dishes, if that makes any sense.
0: It makes plenty of sense. And I think that's the first step for so many people that they should take because I feel the same way. I I don't think I would have been able to transition if I wasn't able to, I guess, veganize some of my favorite dishes because... Like you said, it's like a culture. It's who I am, like taking some of the things that I ate growing up and making a vegan version of it in a way that is so satisfying. It keeps you going. It's important. It's the stuff that I feel like a lot of people probably take in order to get this far in their journey. If you are vegan for more than a year or more, you know, more than a year, you have to do that. That's right. This episode of the podcast is being brought to you by Care.com. Care.com is the world's largest digital marketplace for finding and managing family care. So you can use them to find sitters, nannies, housekeepers, dog walkers, senior care, errand runners, and more. You can hire for full-time, part-time, or anytime. So maybe you need someone for date night or you need someone to walk your dog while you're at work. Care.com is an easy and reliable way to find care for everyone and your family. And they come in handy if you need a housekeeper so that you can spend more time with your family. When I entered my zip code, so many of the housekeepers in my area came up, which was good to have so many options to determine what works best for our situation. So what you do is you join for free as a basic member and then start searching for local providers in your area. So once you upgrade to the premium membership, you can actually reach out to the providers that you are interested in. You can schedule your interviews and you can book and pay them right online or through the app. So upgrading to a premium membership is the way to go because it allows you to get everything done in one place. Care.com also provides access to a variety of background check options that you can purchase to help you make the right hiring decision for your family. As a listener of this podcast, I have a special discount for you. If you go to care.com slash brownvegan, you would actually save 30% off of your care.com premium membership. Once again, that is care.com slash brownvegan for 30% off of your care.com premium membership. Why veganism is culturally relevant to black folks because A lot of times it doesn't feel like it's relatable to us. And that's why we hear it, especially when we hear vegan, we're like, "Mm, that's not us. Give us some insight on how you feel about that, why this lifestyle is culturally relevant to black folks. Because it definitely is.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, one, I would like to just give a reference, uh, a book reference, a title, and Mm -hmm. for other people to be able to possibly look this book up later. And, and, And this book is not about being vegan but the name of the book is in the shadow of slavery and then subtitle would be africa's botanical legacy in the atlantic world okay okay and it just breaks it breaks down all of the crops and um you know so when we say crops we're talking about vegetables and grains and things like that and basically you know where they come from Um, and you know, as you go further into the book, I don't want to give the book away for people that, you know, might want to go get it, but I think that's a good place to start. One is just understanding like where a lot of the fruits and vegetables come from. So it's, it's understanding region and climate, right? So let's just say like Africa, the majority of Africa temperature wise is more like warmer and Mm hot, right? Yeah. All right. Okay. And like, maybe like a place like the Caribbean would be the same, right? It's like a a warmer, hotter type of climate or temperature in -hmm. in the Caribbean. And then if we like maybe go to Europe, we would say like a lot of Europe can be warm, but a lot of it's very cold. Is that an accurate statement? Oh yeah,
0: definitely. Dark and cold.
1: Okay, exactly. So my point is just, if we understand climate and, you know, different regions, we can kind of figure it out ourselves by saying like, where would most of the fruits and vegetables grow? Mm -hmm. Maybe in a place that's warmer.
2: Yeah.
1: Okay. So, you know, that it, it doesn't give you all of the pieces, but it's kind of like starting to put the jigsaw puzzle together. Right. So I think the first step is just understanding the warmer climates would give you a platform to, Uh, grow way more fruits and vegetables or you know grains as well than a place that is colder and darker because we know that you need about six to you know I would say minimum four but any farmer would probably tell you six to ten hours of sunlight you need six to ten hours of sunlight a day to even grow you know anything Mm -hmm. and that's basically constant sunlight on the actual crops that you're growing so in ancient Europe, you know, if you go back you'll see that a lot of a lot of things happen in caves actually. You right? said in caves? Yeah, when we go back to ancient Europe, this is not modern day but ancient. Mm-hmm. So but you know, a lot of the civilizations came out of caves. Right. And so very dark and even in a cave it would be colder, right? Colder and dark. So it's like how much can you grow in a cold dark space in comparison to how much can you grow in a a warm, hot, well-lit space. And so you could just ask your farmer this, right? Or you could look it up, of course. But any farmer would tell you you would be able to grow way more in a warmer, hotter place. So, you know, just the basics of understanding that. And then from there, we tie in, you know, of course, Africa. It's one of the most warmest, hottest, well-lit places, as well as the Caribbean. And, you know, and this is where the majority of what we call today black people are and came from, right? One or the other, either Africa or the Caribbean, you know, just the basics on it. I mean, we can go really, really, really far into it, but I think that it's just fair to say that it's easier to grow grain, vegetables, and fruits in Africa and the Caribbean than it is in Europe. So for a black person to say this vegan plant-based lifestyle is just something for white people, that makes no sense when we just figured out that it's easier to grow vegetables, grains, and fruit where black people come from.
0: Let's talk about this then, because that is so true. We come from that history, right? That is our history. That's who we are, right? But how is it, how do we make it relevant in present day though? Because I feel like historically, yes, but for the people who don't know that, how do they connect to veganism today? I don't even know if that's a good question, but...
1: (laughs) Uh, yeah, I I think it's an excellent question. It's hard to answer, though. Yeah. But, um, I mean, for me, because, okay, first of all, let's define culture, right? Mm -hmm. So, for me, when I think of culture, I think of way of life.
0: Yeah, that's what I think of, too, way of life, yes.
1: Okay. You know, just to kind of get away from... You know, melanin, non-melanin, white, black, and now kind of focus more on culture. So, you know, culture would be way of life. And I think to make it culturally relevant would only, the first thing for me would be always to just focus on key health benefits, Mm -hmm. right? Because for me, I want a healthy way of life or I wanna live as healthy as possible. And I'm pretty sure anybody who's ever been sick could definitely tell you the same.
2: Yeah,
1: I've seen people drunk, throwing up, literally begging to God, oh God, if you just get me through this one time, I won't even drink anymore. I mean, imagine what a person that might be going, like dealing with cancer is feeling like. Like to have a drink and they get drunk for one night and you're praying to God, you know, that you won't drink anymore. So let's just say like a person that has cancer, right? And they're going through all types of possible treatments that they don't want to go through. And they're really seeing like this spectrum of how far sickness can go. Because, you know, most of us just think, you know, a little head congestion, a little chest congestion, you know, and we sick. but there's a, there's a large spectrum of what sickness is. So my point is, As we look down the spectrum of sickness, for me, what makes it culturally relevant is to understand that I can obtain health through this way of life. To me, that's the first thing. It's not about black or white. It's about I can become healthier by doing this. Mm -hmm. So that's one way to look at it culturally. For black people, I think the only thing that honestly can truly make it culturally relevant to a black person is for you to fully embrace your history of who you are and who your people are. You know, and, 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 and saying that, it takes us back to where we started, is just understanding farming and agriculture. And even in this book, um, In the Shadow of Slavery, it breaks down how, like, you know, all of the plantations in the South were primarily, all of them primarily, were ran and owned by white folk. And, and when I say that, I mean, ownership, bookkeeping. But when we talk about the running of the farm, who kept the actual crops, you know, cultivated? Yeah. Who, who did the planting? Who did the harvest? You know, that was totally all black folk. And not only that, we taught them different techniques so now we're getting into culture. We taught them different African techniques that we were using, but we brought to the South. I'm saying farming and agricultural techniques. And now, you know, they seen the difference in how fast their crops were growing, how much larger their crops were growing, how much healthier their crops looked. And I think this is a hard thing for black people because when we look at farming and agriculture in the South, the first thing we think of is sharecropping. You know, black folks working their fingers to the bone. A black man in the field, and his shoes don't have no soles on them. And you know, these are the these are the thoughts that come around, You know, come with southern farming and plantation. You know, it's a sad thing, but I think it was all done by design. That it it, it honestly pushed black people back economically by a thousand years because. If we looked at true industry, like, for instance, Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola would never tell you that that's an agricultural company. Where did this come from? Like Coca-Cola, it came from cane sugar. So you had to farm cane to be able to get the sugar to be able to make the soda, which was the, basically the main component of soda. Also, if we take it all the way back, we would say cola nuts. So we can get the word cola from Cola, But cola nuts is totally African anyway. But let's go forward and say like McDonald's, right? McDonald's would never tell you that they're agricultural companies. They have to farm cattle. So what is the thing they sell the most of? Hamburgers?
2: Fries, right? And
1: French fries. Yeah. French fries is potatoes. You have to farm them. Hamburgers is cattle, right? Beef. But you still have to cattle farm. And you have to raise cattle on feed. So you have to feed the cows something but you have to grow what you feed the cows. So you have to get into farming to produce beef. Mm -hmm. The same thing for those burger buns. Like you can't have a burger bun without the wheat that they use, but the wheat had to be farmed. So my point is this was all done by design. Like Frito-Lay, right? It's potato chips, corn chips, all of this stuff. Like these are the biggest companies. You can go on any gas station in America, see Coca-Cola right now. You can go to any corner store, find Lay's right now. You can go to any downtown, find the McDonald's right now. These companies are billion dollar companies, but they never let you into the inside view of what was really going on. The insight is that we're agriculturally based. We cannot make any of this money without farming first. So when I say by design, it almost pushed Blackfoot, well, the fear of you know, ending up like my sharecropper grandfather, the fear of ending up with a hump, you know, a hunched back, you know, because I'm working in the field all day, bent over, harvesting, now I got this hunch in my back. All of these different fears that we have as black folks, you know, that's part of what pushed us away from wanting to farm at all. But the crazy thing is white European America, they totally get it and they totally built all of the biggest corporations and companies off of agriculture, I think the key is for us to one, start to embrace our culture, which is agriculture. Agriculture's always been our culture. Even indigenously speaking, as far as like, you know, we still have these arguments or disagreements about, it's like the chicken or the egg, which came first. The same thing for America. It's like certain people are like, well, no, the Moors were here first and the Moors were black people. And then certain people say, no, that's not true. You know, all black people came from Africa And there were indigenous inhabitants here, but they were Indian. Whatever the case may be, the indigenous people of this land today where we're at, they were farmers too. Totally.
2: Oh, yeah.
1: It it doesn't just go back to the pictures that we've seen in our history books of pilgrims and the Indians. But if you could just go that far, because to me, that's an easy reference point. I mean, what do you notice there, right? It's like the corn and the the corn and the squash and the vegetables and the grain that these indigenous people had gave these Europeans as they came to settle here in America. So, I mean, we could take it back to just like grade school history and figure that out. The people that are indigenous to this place where we live today were farmers. And if you don't feel that that's of your culture and you feel like, well, I'm from Africa or I'm from Haiti or... I'm from, you know, um, Jamaica even. You know, once again, you know, that's your culture. Like, black folks have always uh, been into farming and agriculture. And it's what gave us sustainability. And that's what we forgot. And that's what the white folks actually remember. And that's why, if you look, their businesses become way more sustainable Because they understand the whole process of what it takes to get from the rooter to the tutor, from the beginning to the end. For instance, black folks are more interested now in maybe business ownership than cultivation, right? So, for instance, if a person says, I'm going to start to make uh, kale chips. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start teaching these black folks how to eat more vegetables. I'm going to make some kale chips. I'm going to bag the kale chips up. They're going to be the best kale chips you ever had. And we're going to start selling them all through the hood. We're going to even go into places that aren't the hood. We're going to sell them to everybody. Everybody's going to love these kale chips. What I would tell you that I know for sure is on average, and this is not for every case, but on average, most black folks will choose to go buy that kale from someone who already grew it. That cuts out the sustainability you're losing money, whereas most white folks would figure out how to grow the kale themselves, mm. even, if, even if that meant hiring a black person to do it, to find a greater sense of sustainability and be able to profit uh, more and long-term business is what they're thinking of instead of just a quick come up. Mm. And I, I hate to sound, you know what I'm saying, like bitter, but it makes me feel some type of way when I'm in the community, I mean, I'm in the hood all the time, and um, I see what I'm telling you now. And there is a resurgence of black farming, but, you know, we're just at the tip of that iceberg at this point. But there is definitely more and more young black farmers, you know, coming back to the surface and reclaiming their roots.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about that, your outreach work, because I know that you you told me it was a point in your journey that you would make all this food and you couldn't even give it away. <laughs> Nobody would take it. So let's talk about why you started, how you started. Get into that story. I really want to know more about that.
1: Yeah, for me, it was. Um, well, as far as the outreach work, I've always yeah. been, you know, like my grandmother, my aunt kind of growing up in a church. I was always taught to just like help it's kind of always been a thing with me to just help, you know, that's how my people taught me, um, give back when you can, I guess as far as like now how I've got to the point, I mean, I have to always try to give respect to the ones that really deserve it most. So it's just like, you know, my grandmother, my aunt, you know, my mother, I would want to just give them a shout out. And, you know, some of them aren't here to hear it, but just out of respect. But you know, moving forward to today, taking those same virtues that they showed me, you know, give back to the community, help people when you can. You know, I felt like a void. Like I'm not doing as much as grandma would have done or as much as grandma would have wanted me to do. So I started soul searching. I started, you know, doing, um, it's this thing called Hands On Atlanta, actually. It's it's like a search engine for um, community engagement And volunteer work
2: Um,
1: so yeah so I started out just basically searching through their search engine and looking for things that made sense to me I think the first thing I did was like I went to a reservation or like a creek and we helped pick up garbage out of the creek and then from there it was like I went another day on another assignment it was a soap nonprofit that actually takes the soap from a hotel, because you know, the majority of the times when you're in a hotel, you would use the soap once or twice, you're only in a hotel for usually a day or two, mm-hmm. and then you would leave that soap in the bathroom, you, mo- most people wouldn't take the used soap with them.
2: Right.
1: Um, so this one particular nonprofit figured out how to get the soap from the hotels, melt it down, and the process disinfected, mold it back up, and then send soap to people in need across the world Mm. Um, and you know primarily one of the places they were sending the soap to was Africa so I guess those were my first things as like an adult moving back into this new space of like helping and giving back I went on a trip I forgot exactly where I went to but it was a plane I went on a plane and I think it might have been Seattle or New York that time I was traveling quite a bit at the time I was feeling so good you know how like when you do something it's just like oh man you know, I was so inspired by the things that happened as usual. You know, when I'm around good people, I usually pick up from, you know, good things that they do. But long story short, I, I caught the train from the Atlanta airport to where I was staying at the time, which was Doraville. So to the Doraville train station, I got off at the train. Of course, I could have easily took a taxi, but I only had one bag with me and it had wheels. So I was feeling really good about myself. I said, I'm going to just walk. It wasn't a long walk, you know. Just And also kind of, you know, I, at the time I was, you know, I had a nice car and I still do have a car. But at the time I had like this really, you know, fly car that I just thought I was everything. And my point was, I didn't even get a chance to ride through my neighborhood in the sense of understanding what was going on in my neighborhood. It's like, yeah, I'm jumping in a car to go down Atlanta and, you know, basically kind of showboat you know so all of this i say all of this to say that just to take the time to walk through my neighborhood is i think what i needed that's what happened i walked through the neighborhood and i seen a bunch of men that looked displaced as i get you know maybe a half a mile from the from the uh, train station and i only had to walk maybe a mile mile and a half to where i had to go so i'm about halfway through my walk and i see a bunch of displaced men and I, I walk past them, and something just tells me like you should figure out what's going on with them. So I walk back and I asked one of the guys I say, you know, what's going on here? And I, I I wanted to say you guys almost look homeless, mm. you know, but I tried to measure my words right. So I was right. just like, what's you know what's going on? And uh, he's like, you know, this is like a, a AA program. And he said a lot of times the brothers have come here in fear of running back into their addiction. So they'll sit here for two and three hours waiting for the next meeting to start because if they were to just go down the block and, you know, walk, literally this addiction is calling them to where they might run in the QT and get another beer or, you know, so it was like a safe haven. They just sat around this building all the time, you know, in fear of missing a meeting, and ending up back as a addict Mm. um, to alcohol. So long story short, you know, I, I finished my walk and I got the information from him. And I was like, you know, I wanna do something. I wanna really help these brothers over here. So I did a little research on alcoholism and basically like healthy diet and alcoholism and how like a healthy diet could help a person with addiction to alcohol. So I was like, this is the perfect chance for me to try one of these vegan recipes that I love so much and um, maybe help them at the same time. And I remember the first thing I ever made for them was um, a sweet potato jalapeno bisque. So a bisque is just like a thick soup. Mm -hmm. Um, So I made them like a sweet potato jalapeno soup. And I always had something to go with it. I would always make two things. I don't know that day if it was soup and salad, or if it was soup and whatever else, but I know it was soup. And so I took it to them, you know, they tasted the soup. It was like 35 of them. And like every person was like, yo, this soup is like crazy good. Like it's almost the best thing I've ever had. And I started to see the smiles, like, cause a lot of these men, if, if you would understand how it feels to one, only work a part-time job, but you need a full-time job to pay your bills, two scared so scared that you don't even want to walk down the street you'd rather sit outside of a building all day when you would see a person going through this if you could just imagine the face that they would have right like emotionally i don't know what you see right it doesn't have to be you know whatever anybody sees when i gave them this food i could see the difference automatically like whatever face it was it was a smile now it was like people had these happy smirks. Mm-hmm. Um, it was laughter. It was giggles. And I was like almost overwhelmed. I was like, wow, is it? And I'm still testing things to this day. I, I know, I mean, you talked about me testing things in my field now. So, but I went back to think in my mind, is it because maybe it was just a home cooked meal?
0: Definitely. Okay. It, was, it was a lot of but, things. It was the food. It was the home cooked meal, your energy your generosity, everything. It was necessary. The timing was perfect. It was it was the combination of a lot of things. Absolutely.
1: But that was the very beginning honestly. Like that was the very beginning of me one turning into a vegan chef but two engaging with my community from like a tip of the iceberg level. And of course you you know that since then, you know, things have changed in the sense of I'm doing much more for my community now.
0: I know for those men, it was, it was uh, a good experience, but I know you said at one point it was kind of hard to get people to just eat eat the food. So why do you think that was an issue? And like, what do you do about it these days? Those
1: men used to eat from the gas station at the corner. Mm -hmm. So it was like, you know, nachos with that nacho cheese sauce that would come out of, you know, like a dispenser. Yeah. They would eat that stuff, like, every day, you know, because it was like the gas station by the place. And once again, a lot of these people were low. They were at the point of their lowest income. A lot of people um, were close to being totally displaced without a home, I should say. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, like, me starting to try to get into becoming a vegan chef, most people... And still most people that I know today still eat meat. Like most of my family and friends, 85% of them still eat meat to this day. Um, So trying to push a vegan plant-based lifestyle, but they would call it an agenda on them. It was like, nah, I'm really not your guinea pig, bro. Like, you know what I mean? Like I'm not the one to really because I don't even like vegan food. So this is a, right, this is just a mindset. It's just like people think that they don't like it because they never had it, right? Mm -hmm. So this is kind of how I was getting, you know, the the, 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 uh, attitude that I was getting from some, some of my friends and family was just like, you know, at the end of the day, it's like vegan. I mean, what does that mean? Like another salad, you know, maybe extra pickles with your sandwich and your sandwich doesn't have any meat. So I know that means it's just lettuce, tomatoes, and mayonnaise. It is just this mindset of like, you know, what is vegan and, and what couldn't be done. It felt like I couldn't pay people to really taste my food. So I say all of that to say that this was a perfect experience for me to say, I have thirty five gentlemen that will taste my food. You know, like that was like a big thing for me. You know, like a like a tasting table. Um thirty five people and it's not just them tasting it but getting their feedback and to be able to stand there and look at the, um, the difference in emotion is, is, is really big to me too. Me starting community service actually helped me become a vegan chef in the sense of the people who needed the community service were not questioning vegan or plant-based lifestyle. They really just wanted like a home-cooked hot meal. Mm-hmm. I think that's why, see, I didn't even know this. I'm learning things about myself as I talk to you. I think that's why I'm so connected to the community because it's like I wouldn't be where I am today as a chef. And, you know, for people that don't know, like just to give you a, some insight on where I am, I'm selling out dinners for $75 a person. I was going to ask you about every, that next.
0: Yeah. Like,
1: uh, every dinner I do. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, and, and you know, you're 60 people at, you know, $75 a person, you know, well over $3,000 in a night, but I couldn't fathom doing this, you know, seven years ago because people wouldn't give me a chance. So yeah, it's like for me, it's, it's once again, I'm really just figuring this out talking to you is that I know that's why I'm so dedicated and so compassionate when it comes to the community because I wouldn't be who I am today as far as a chef without the community believing in me and trying out what I had to offer. Wow.
0: That, I love that. Oh, my goodness. So let us know how we can follow you, how we can connect with you on social media, wherever you want to send us. Just let us know how to do that.
1: So, yeah, as far as contacting me, everything is online under King's Apron. So, you know, if you're on like a social media, like a, maybe a Facebook or Instagram, it's at King's Apron. My website is kingsapron.com. Yeah. And even my email is kingsapron at gmail.com. That is K-I-N-G-S-A-P-R-O-N.
0: I'll make sure I also link it on the blog post for this episode at brownvegan.com to make it easy for people to click through that way too. And yeah, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise, so much history, so much love, and and also sharing your um, passion and your mission. I feel like your purpose is much appreciated.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. And I definitely appreciate you.
0: I hope this episode was helpful. Come over to my Instagram or Facebook page at Brown Vegan and let me know your thoughts. Also, be sure to rate the podcast five stars on iTunes to make it easy for other people to find us. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will talk to you next week.
3: When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at grammarly.com slash podcast. That's grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt.